So those of you who know me speaking know I'm probably safer down here, otherwise the amount I go sideways, I'm going to take all the music stands out. <laughs> so yeah, I have been asked to speak today on the question of revival. What is revival? What would we have to do to see revival happen and how might it come? Can we even still hope for revival in the church? So that means, controversially for me, I am not preaching the text today. And you know how much inside I sort of hate that. But that's not my brief today. However, I chose the readings of, from Psalm 85 because I am going to reference it briefly. I'm also going to reference the beginning of Habakkuk 3, one of the prophets who also speaks about revival. Now, both of these texts come from the Old Testament. They speak about Israel as the people of God. And they speak predominantly of the people of God being brought back to life. Revival. Revive has to do with life. So bringing back to life. So when you look at Psalm 85, verses 1 to 3, the passage we had read, we hear that this prayer is the prayer of a person who has known a time when God's people lived under the visible favor of God. They lived under his protection. They experienced his favor on their land. They experienced his favor on the work of their hands. Everything was good with their world. Their sins were covered, the text says, so that the sin did not stand between the people and God, and they experienced only his kindness. Who wants to live in a world like that? Amen. <laughs> but verses four to six, it shifts. It's clear that verses one to three, that was then, but this is now, and this is what the psalmist says. He says, restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. And so we see for the psalmist that things have now changed from a time of great blessing into a season in which God appears to be angry, at least God appears to be distant. The previous favor is now withdrawn. The people have fallen away from him. There's this sense of needing to be restored, needing to be brought back to God. And so the psalmist prays for a revival. He says, would you not revive us again? Would you stir up our love for you again that we might rejoice in you and you only? Similar thing in Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk 3, verse 1, the prophet prays. And he says, Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work. Oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And Habakkuk goes on to tell in the next few verses of the glory of God when he comes, the sheer power of God. He says, God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hands where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. 
the ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. When Habakkuk thinks of God reviving his work, he understands that in terms of God showing up in power. He references God's glory, his splendor, the sheer unadulterated power of God. When God comes to his people, Habakkuk says, everyone knows about it. And this God is the one whose identity is holy. So when we find prayer for revival in the Old Testament, it's a prayer that God would come to his people. And when God comes in that manifest presence, that way you know that God has shown up in the place, you find people, Psalm 85 says, experiencing new joy in the Lord, a new passion for him. You find God's people also faced with his sheer holiness. Habakkuk 3 says he is the holy one. And thirdly, you experience him moving with great power as we've seen in that text I just read. When God comes in revival, when he comes with his manifest presence, it produces passion for the Lord. It produces purity of lifestyle and it produces inconceivable power for his work. It produces passion for the Lord. It produces purity of lifestyle and it produces inconceivable power for the Lord's work. So that's something of what the Old Testament says about this theme. Now, when you speak about the church, to the church, it always makes sense then to go to the New Testament because the church is also the people of God, but we're not Israel. So it's important to look at what we have in the Old Testament and ask, can we trace that theme into the New? We have a slight challenge. The New Testament doesn't really take up this theme. But I think there's a reason why, let me tell you. We have the closest thing we have to an account of this kind of thing, a renewal of passion for the Lord, of purity of lifestyle and of power for ministry is in the church in Acts 2 at Pentecost. If you've read that passage, you will know something of what I mean, but I don't think that's revival. The reason I don't think it's revival is because it is not a rebirth, but is the birth of the church. This is God coming on his people, every single one of his people now, to give them the spirit for themselves. That has never happened in the history of the people of God before. Previously, the spirit was given to one or two here and there, the special ones. But at Pentecost now, there is not a rebirth, but a birth. A birth of the church in which every single person, every single person in here who's put your trust in Christ, you are filled with the spirit. You are empowered by this spirit. But that's not revival. That's the birth of the church. It does have the same hallmarks I've just mentioned, that God comes at Pentecost in his manifest presence. And as I say, he produces a passion for Jesus. He produces purity of lifestyle and he gives power for ministry. But it's not revival. So you think, okay, that's fine. Well, you know, that happens in the 30s AD. The New Testament carries on being written all the way through the first century. The thing is, that's only actually another 60 years. 
there would still be people at the end of the first century when the last book of the New Testament is written, there are still people who would have been in that upper room and they're still alive at that point. There are people who would have been in the crowd outside when Pentecost spilled out of the upper room into the crowd outside. These people would have known and experienced this incredible release of the presence and power of God. The people would have been living those 60 years mostly in the goodness of what the Spirit had done. It's a bit early to be seeing revival at that point because the church is still alive with the power and the passion of God. And that, I think is why we don't really have much about revival in the New Testament. There's not really, at that stage, much need for revival. But I'll tell you what we can do in terms of method. We can now go beyond the pages of scripture into church history. Now, church history is not inspired by God in the same way that scripture is. When we want to learn the ways and will of God, we go to the scriptures because they are the inspired, authoritative word of God. Church history isn't. But the truth is also that the same spirit who's in the pages of the Bible is also the same spirit who was given to the church at Pentecost. And it is that same spirit who has worked in the church through generations So if revival is a work of God in the new covenant, we would expect to find it in church history. Doesn't mean it comes always without excess, without complications. We're not necessarily looking to draw doctrine from this idea. But we should expect that if revival is more than just for the Israel, more than just for the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God, but if it's also for the church, it will continue. We should expect that we will see revivals in church history, revivals that will produce exactly the same as we saw in the Old Testament. The manifest presence of God producing a new passion for Jesus, a new purity of lifestyle in the church, and new power for ministry. Now, if you have spent most of your life or all of your life in 21st century London, as I have, Revival might seem like, oh no, I don't know if that ever happens in the world. But the reality is, there are movements of God that perhaps look like revival happening in the world even now. We don't have written records of a lot of that because it's happening on the ground. There is too much happening for people to write it down, or it's happening in countries where the church is persecuted, where it's not okay to be a Christian. And so these things are not being recorded right now. But we do have the odd few stories coming out of Iran, for example, that the church there is experiencing a bigger growth than we can perhaps imagine. We've seen similar coming out of China. There are stories coming out of North Korea, of Afghanistan even in the last few months. These things are happening on the earth today. But for our purposes, because we don't have the written records, we're better to go back into church history to say, does revival happen? Has it happened? What are the conditions for it happening? Can I hope for it to happen here today? So let me tell you some stories. And I've chosen UK-based revivals because I think when it happens overseas, it's easy to think, oh, it's over there and it's never going to happen to us. So I'm going to tell you a little bit from a couple of the Welsh revivals and also from the revival that was in the Scottish islands in the 20th century to give you a sense of what happens 
when revival comes to the church. And as I share the stories, hopefully you will see that again and again, we get this pattern of the manifest presence of God coming on the church and producing those three things that I've drawn from the Old Testament, producing a passion for Jesus, a purity of lifestyle and power for ministry. So one Welsh revival, the lesser known Welsh revival happened in 1859. And there's an account of a man who went with his friend to a prayer meeting. This prayer meeting had thousands and thousands of men in a field. I mean, they were in a field because there was nowhere else for them to go. There were just so many of them. And they were praying. And in fact, they were praying in silence. And the presence of God in that place was tangible. You could feel it. And the man who records this story, his friend said to him, wasn't it incredible seeing all of those thousands of men praying in absolute silent awe at God? And do you know what the guy who records the story said? He said, oh, I didn't, didn't even notice them. All I was aware of was God. The presence of God in that place, that field, was so strong that he was not even really aware of the magnitude of thousands and thousands of men praying in utter silence. No, the presence of God was stronger. And then he said, and these are the words that strike me to the heart, he said, how terrible is this place? It is too terrible. It is too much for me. My flesh is too weak to bear the weight of glory. There's something about the presence of God in revival times that is heavy. I've experienced the tangible presence of God myself a few times, but only in brief moments. And weight is a word that I would use for that experience. Um, a sense, actually, of a weight so heavy that it's like the air was being pressed from my body. It was like I could barely stand. And I actually thought, I can see how people think they could die when the presence of God shows up. And that wasn't in revival times. <laughs> so I begin to see how this man could have said, my flesh is too weak to bear this weight of God's glory. Nearly 50 years later, Wales had the revival that is most known for, the 1904 revival. And again, the presence of God in this revival was so strong that people physically trembled. Even at a distance from the town where the worship meetings were happening, you know, miles along the road, people would feel that same presence of God. They weren't in the church. They weren't even like 50 meters down the road from the church. They were some distance from the town or village and they would feel the weight of God's glory. And this presence of God produced a passion for Jesus. In the Welsh revival, and the same as in the Old Testament, you see the presence of God producing 
a passion for Jesus. The passion for Jesus was such that the churches didn't close until late at night. In this revival, church leaders would try to close the Sunday evening meeting multiple times and just completely fail because the worship would start back up again. And the poor church leader would be desperate to go back home. But no, the, the work of God was such that the people's passion for the Lord could not be contained and they had to worship and they had to pray. You had people then, not just in the Sunday services, but in the um, weekday nights going for prayer meetings in people's homes. Three or four nights a week, in addition to that late night on Sunday night, three or four times a week, they were praying in homes and they were praying and praying and praying till guess what time? Three a.m. And then the men were still getting up and managing to go to work on time in the coal pits because the spirit of God's grace on the people was sufficient that the need for sleep kind of decreased in that season. The people were so passionate about Jesus that their prayer could not be contained. There was also singing. The Welsh revival is known for its singing. Um, there would be no organist often, no choir, no service leader, but the songs would just roll across the congregation as the spirit ebbed and flowed across the place. The people's passion for Jesus just couldn't be contained. One of the songs that came out of that revival we still sing today, here is love vast as the ocean. And the people just couldn't contain it. That was also true in the Scottish revival that happened in 1949 in the um, Western Islands off the Scottish coast. Again, singing, the converts, new converts would get kicked out of the church building because the church leader had finally succeeded in get, getting everyone out so they could go home and get some sleep. And the people would just gather on the roadside, they'd gather on the beach and they would sing because they couldn't contain it anymore. There was also a deep hunger in the Scottish revival for the word of God. The people wanted to hear the word of God. So when one service would end in the small hours of the morning, the people were like, no, no, we still need to hear the word of God. And there's records one day of the crowd literally going along the side of the road. I mean, this is Scotland, the Scottish Isles, so it's presumably cold. So they end up, of all places, in the police station. I can only assume it's the only place open at two or three o'clock in the morning. And there they start having another service where the word of God is preached and more and more people come to understand their need for a savior. People who didn't know Jesus would be so impacted by the presence of God on those islands in that revival that they would come to a conviction of their sin. They would come to a recognition of their need for Jesus without even going into the church. And when they would speak to the minister, one guy said, you know, no, I've not been anywhere near the church. I was miles down the road, but the presence of God came so heavy upon me. I felt so much guilt for my sin. I repented. You need to tell me about Jesus. I need to know because the presence of God is in the air. He says, I can't get away from the spirit. In fact, Duncan Campbell, who led the Scottish revival, described revival as happening when a community is saturated with the presence of God. Can you imagine what that might be like? One of the villages on the island of Lewis in this 1949 revival was really, really anti the revival. The villagers didn't want to know anything about it. 
There wasn't much success in preaching, but the people, about 30 believers, went into a farmhouse, granite farmhouse, with the minister and also Duncan Campbell, this revival leader. And they got into the uh, house and they prayed, and it was hard. You know when prayer is really hard and you're like, God, are you there? And they prayed till midnight, and eventually Duncan Campbell, the leader, says to the blacksmith, who at this point has not prayed at all, he says, I think it is time that you ought to pray. And so the blacksmith then prays for half an hour. Time does funny things in the presence of God. And he ends, God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour floods on dry ground and you are not doing it. And he paused and then he concluded, God, your honor is at stake And I challenge you to keep your covenant promises. And at that moment, this granite farmhouse shook like a leaf. Records say that all of the china on the sideboard was rattling as waves of divine power moved through that house. God heard. If ever you're in doubt, it's always good to remind God of his honor because he will always act for his honor. And so the people then closed the prayer meeting. I mean, that's probably your definition of a successful prayer meeting, right? (laughs) Now, bear in mind, this village is the one that doesn't want the revival. People are really hardened. They go out into the village at two o'clock in the morning and like everyone's around and the place is ablaze with the presence of God and people are carrying chairs saying, is there room for us in the church? We need to go and hear about Jesus. This is what happens when God comes in revival. The physical power of God, like Habakkuk mentioned, but also power for salvations, power for renewed purity of living. Let me tell you one more story from a North Korean revival that happened three years later in 1907. Actually, if you're looking at revivals, the turn of that century was a great time to be alive. I'm just going to read to you from a Western missionary's recall of one meeting there in particular. He said... As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in a perfect agony of conviction. Sometimes after confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping and we would all weep. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and praying Then he says, my last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched toward heaven. Every man forgot every other because each was face to face with God. I can hear yet that fearful sound of hundreds of men pleading with God for life, for mercy. My heart hungers 
for that. I first heard these stories 20 years ago, and I have never been the same. Like I say, I've tasted the tangible presence of God on hmm, a handful of occasions in my life, but I have never seen it on a corporate scale to the degree that these stories tell. I have never seen the church so in love with Jesus that we want him more than anything else. I have never seen the church so committed to holiness that the faintest trace of sin is dealt with visibly and painfully until it's gone. I have never seen the church so filled with power that healings are commonplace, that people are having corporate visions like the children in the Chinese orphanage in the 1940s. I haven't even got time to tell you about that one, but they're incredible. I have never seen unbelievers drawn to church by some force beyond their own volition. I've never seen them convicted out in the streets and going, tell me, tell me about Jesus. I've encountered the presence of the Lord. I long for this. I live for this. I confess to you over 20 years, I've kind of forgotten, but I live for this. But it will cost. It will cost everything you have to give. It will cost everything you hold dear. It may come with accompanying suffering or persecution. Or perhaps it will be the strengthening prelude, the grace gift of God in order to enable the church to bear serious persecution. However it comes, it's going to cost. For those who would lead Revival, it will cost you more. And you'll begin paying the price as soon as you decide it's what you want more than anything else. I need to tell you too that revival will look messy. Revival will look messier actually than most of us can bear. We say we want revival, but when it shows up, we'll be like, oh no, not like that, thank you God. There will be powerful physical effects that some of us will hate. There will be overflows of emotion so great as people connect with the Lord that it will look more like commotion. And there will be excess. There will be human rubbish mixed in with the stuff that's actually of God. Let's not pretend it's otherwise. For those who idolize good order in the church, it will be severely uncomfortable. Because God's order is not the same as my idea of order or yours. You can tell from the stories God's idea of timekeeping is not the same as mine or yours. God's perspective on order is higher than my perspective or yours in the same way that his ways and his thoughts are higher than yours or mine. That doesn't mean we don't test everything. I'm not saying that. But if we see what looks like revival, we test with humility. We test with an openness to recognizing that if it's God, it will be overwhelming. The only way it's not overwhelming is when it's not God and we can control it. But our God doesn't, doesn't sit in a box and he certainly never stays in the boxes we make for him. So, you know, up front, some of you may be sitting here and going, I don't want this. I don't want God that much. It's fine if I can keep him where he's useful to me, but I, I, don't, I don't want to be overpowered. I don't want to be overwhelmed. But if you do, 
one of the questions I said I'd address is how can you prepare for a revival? Well, first of all, it doesn't depend on us. It does not depend on us. Our God is not a slot machine. It's not about how many pennies or how many prayers you put into the slot. God is sovereign and he will come to his people how he wants and when he wants. And ours is to wait for that. But it doesn't mean we don't have a place. It doesn't mean we don't have a role. Our prayers don't twist his arm, but our prayers are an expression of our longing. God, this is what I want. I want your presence amongst your church more than I want anything in the world. And when our longing mixes with his longing, when we ask him to pour out more of his spirit, so it would be his spirit that groans in us and prays in us for the coming of the king to his church, then we will see revival. but no one can predict when or how. One moment, the leaders and the people will be responsible for the service and the next minute, good luck to us because the Lord himself will claim his rightful place amongst his people. Last point, on what basis can I hope for this? On what basis is this hope reasonable? Do you know, Honestly, I thought about this quite hard because it's really difficult in the New Testament to follow this theme of revival. I've come to the conclusion that the reason I hope for revival is because the Bible says in Matthew that the love of many will grow cold. And I see that. I see that in Christians. I see that in the Church of England. I see that in the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Pentecostals, the Catholics, the Orthodox, whoever you are, the free churches. I don't care. None of us is exempt from this. Our love grows cold. We sing, take the world, but give me Jesus, but we don't mean a blind word of it, do we? The love of many grows cold. My love grows cold. I can't sustain being a Christian for the next, the next 40 years unless he comes and revives me. And the point is, the Bible says, the love of many will grow cold, but at the end, not all. And that means he has got to come for the ones whose love will not grow cold. That will be because he has strengthened them, because he has revived them. We need to pray for personal revival. But in addition, we need now to pray for corporate revival. That all of us will get caught up in this freeing gift that he gives of himself. So why am I believing for revival? Honestly, because I can't afford not to be. If that's going to be true that the love of many will grow cold, but therefore not all, that's going to be God's activity in our lives that makes it possible that our love will not grow cold. We are in the midst of the years. You know, Habakkuk prayed, and he said, in the midst of the years, revive your work. We're in the midst of the years. Pentecost is long history now. We are not yet at the place where the Lord has returned. If you read the scripture, it seems like there's a few more things yet to happen before he shows up. In some sense, we're in the middle, and the middle is the most dangerous place to be. And so I say with Habakkuk, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Friends, honestly, I believe we need revival.
It's difficult, yes, to make a fully biblical case for it, but I've told you why that is. You actually couldn't expect to make a biblical case for it in the New Testament, given it's only 60 years, really, in that season since Pentecost. It's one of the challenges in preparing this talk is, you know, we are going beyond scripture, but we can see that God comes to his people. His manifest presence comes to his people again and again across the earth, across the generations. He comes, and when he comes, when his manifest presence comes, he produces a passion for Jesus. He produces purity of lifestyle. And he produces power for ministry. And as a result of that power for ministry, there are also conversions. Yes, there will be cost. It will be easy to hear what I've said today and just decide, nah, I don't really want that. Thanks, God. Quite happy keeping you here. Take the world, but let me keep a little bit and give me Jesus. There will be cost. But Psalm 85 tells us there will also be joy. For those who encounter the king changing their lives, there will be joy. That's what the psalmist says. The prophet says there will also be the glorious presence of God resting with his people. And if revival comes, there will be many also who stream to the mountain of the Lord, coming into the house of God, saying, what must we do to be saved? Chasing after his presence, that's what I want to give my life for. I know of nothing higher. And I sense that the Spirit faces each of us with a choice too today. Do I want his presence? Not just in a tame way. <laughs> Everyone wants a tame God. But do I want the God who overwhelms? The God who <laughs> looks at my boxes while he climbs out of them and then destroys them to such an extent I can't box him again. My testimony is, yeah. 20 years after having mostly forgotten that stuff, yeah, that's what I want more than anything else. I wonder today, what is your testimony on this question? Let's pray. Take the world, but give me Jesus. We don't know what we pray, save that that is a foolhardy prayer. But nevertheless, Almighty God, take the world but give us Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.